Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Gagnon, CEO of 1UP Health, a healthcare data platform that's raised over $75 million in funding. Joe, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brett. Pleasure to be here. As I was preparing for this interview, I, I came across some content from yours and talked about all of your adventures that you've done. I know you're an endurance athlete. I'm an aspiring endurance athlete. I, I told you in the pre-interview, I've done a few ultra runs. So I'm getting into this world. And as I've gotten in this world, I have a lot of my friends ask me, why? Why do I do it? Why do I my body through this. So I want to turn that around and ask that to you. Joe, why do you do this to your body? Hey, Brad, that's a good question. The community of us who do this, we always ask it, even though we sort of figure it out. You know, I think it touches on this idea that I've been playing with for 20 plus years, which is human potential is infinite. We're not going to find the edges of that potential, but we certainly should lean in and figure out what we're capable of. The down the middle thing is to go build a good career, you know, white collar world that we used to call it and, you know, build companies, make money. But it's just so one dimensional that I think we miss the fact that we have all of this other power inside of us. And one of the ways to find out how much power we have is to take on other struggles, you know, whether it's the sort of the Buddhist idea of suffering or just the idea of taking on a big challenge and finding out what we're made of. And an ultra marathon is a very intense and focused way of doing that. And every time you do one in the middle, you sort of want it to be over. When you're done, you sort of want to do the next one because it starts to trigger parts of our biology that just lay dormant if we are only one dimensional. Have you had that be the case where after a race, you kind of look back and just wish you were back in that place I was telling my fiance that after my first ultra, like for probably three or four days, I was almost in like a, in a state of depression. I was looking back at like that pain cave that I was in, you know, 80% of the way through the race. I, I wanted to be back in that place for some dark reason that I could never articulate or explain. But have you ever had that happen? Yeah, I think that there's some reasons why. I think, you know, the setting is as difficult as it is, it's somewhat controlled and it's controlled by us. So that's a very comfortable feeling. Even if we have, you know, there's a difference between pain and suffering, right? The pain of a broken leg is not the suffering that we feel when there's discomfort. And I think the reason why we like to go back into it is it's something that we can actively work on and be productive about it. Because you get these inputs and you're like, huh, what do I do with it? Matter of fact, you know, I think it got me as a better board member on the companies that I've run because I had to resolve issues that were annoying, whether it be I had a rash or I fell and got bruised or I was hungry or tired. And those kinds of feedback systems make us problem solve. And in a board meeting, when someone says, oh, why'd you miss your numbers? Or, you know, what about the competitive landscape? You have a sense then of what to do with that difficult question because you've sort of processed it on your own and you're not really reliant on others. And I think it's just really this idea of getting to practice what you really want to be good at 
it carries through beyond just a race, but into life. Love that. What's the craziest adventure that you've been on so far when it comes to endurance and pushing yourself? What's the well, the wildest adventure or craziest story you could tell us? Yeah, in uh, 2017, I ran a marathon on six continents in six days. So I went from Sydney to Singapore to Johannesburg to London to Sao Paulo to LA. So basically 12 hours in a continent or a country and 12 hours on a plane. Took six overnight flights in a row slept 14 hours, ran 157 miles, flew 37,000 miles, didn't lay down for an entire week. And, you know, I pushed this edge of the system that I run here called Joe Canyon. And, you know, Brett, what was amazing, wasn't it, was just that I did this physical endurance thing with the people I met and the excitement that it brought and uh, the challenge that people took on to participate because they would say, hey, do you mind if I run five miles with you because I just want to be part of this. And so it was just like this amazing combination. The coolest part about it is that I just created the idea and went and did it. Didn't ask for permission. Of course, there's no one asked permission of, but you know, like maybe people say, I'd love to go climb Mount Everest. It's probably unrealistic for many reasons, but you can take a week and create an incredible adventure. You can manufacture and then go execute and find out what all of that means. It was just unbelievable. That's awesome. What's next on the list of uh, adventures and, and ways to push yourself? Yeah, so I think one thing that I'm just trying to get to is the consistency some of it. You know, this year I set out to do 100,000 push-ups and run 3,000 miles. The consistency of having to run eight miles a day and do 300 push-ups a day is a different kind of challenge than just doing a 100-mile race over 24 hours. And so one of the things I think is to overcome, right? And because so much of what gets in our way, you know, we can figure out how to overcome it. Like, so here, so if you're on a business trip and you show up late in San Francisco and it's two in the morning because you flew from the East Coast and you still have your 300 pushups to do, what do you do? You're in your hotel room. Do you just sort of look at yourself and say, yeah, you can go to bed sooner. You did them yesterday. You'll do them tomorrow. No one will even know. And then you look back at the mirror and you say, are those the only excuses you have? Just get down and do the stupid 300 push-ups." <laughs> and what it does is it's just teaching me that the noise that's in our head can be quieted through the discipline that we can drive by the choices that we make. So every year I set out new choices that drive a daily habit or a weekly habit or something that you can't avoid. And that's in addition to saying that, you know, every year I'll run a hundred mile race you know, every year I'll create another new adventure. And then the last part of it is to try and get other people out doing it. So, you know, my goal is to support crew, pace, help people achieve their version of, you know, the high performance life. That's awesome. Well, I hope to see you out at the, uh, what was the race? The Desert Rats race coming up in April. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> I love it. Well, I could spend probably a good two hours here talking about you know, ultra running and endurance athlete, but I, I think it's time to probably switch gears and dive a little bit deeper into the professional side and, and the business side. So let's just start with a, a high level overview of what One Up Health does. Yeah. So One Up Health is a cloud modern data platform for healthcare to allow us to take in any kind of data, put it in a standard web format in our industry, we call it Fire, and make that data available to all parties. So a payer, a provider, a patient, a pharma company, any of them that want to interoperate and compute on that data 
we do that for them. What about this problem that attracted you to this problem and why this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. If we look back at both my career and sort of what's happened over the past 30 years in tech-enabled reengineering or tech-enabled transformation, most of it has happened because we built infrastructure, whether it was the internet, the web standards, the cloud, networking, all of these things allowed businesses to operate on an end-to-end process so that they could optimize for whatever they were selling, the people they were serving, and the way the operation needed to run. And so, well, you know, we know this, right? In banking, how an ATM machine works, or in retail, because we could buy on our phone and have it shipped next day, or in travel and transportation, I can actually pick the aisle seat near the front of the plane on my phone. These are all things that were enabled by data and standards and compute. And so in healthcare, we have not done that. You know, healthcare still makes 100 million copies of paper records a year. There are companies who are faxing documents around. It does not allow for anyone to operate at the level that they need to. It's a $4.2 trillion industry. We are ranked near the bottom in developed nations on you know, care quality. And the experience we all know is not where it needs to be. So we need to build a better infrastructure this utility of source that everyone can leverage to operate better. And that's what we're setting out to do. Why is it so bad? Yeah, it's a good question. It's sort of a, a historical issue because we started off with, you know, we had the you know, family practitioner who came to our house and they knew who we were. You know, then the federal government decided that we would build out a third party payer system to actually in the beginning to help people who couldn't afford health care. And then we put in the Medicare system, which changed what happened for people once they turned 65, and then the cost of delivery got more expensive. And there was really driven by the way the medical system works, not a lot of technology, because it was a lot of people. And so we have now spent the past 15 years trying to layer in technology into a business that never really used it. And so we're now in a space where you know, it's a little bit like the one-room schoolhouse, you know? We haven't really gotten too much farther sometimes when you think about education. And in healthcare, it still sort of operates at a very personal level. And the third-party payer system, which means that you and I are not directly paying for our care, hmm, it doesn't put enough pressure on from a customer point of view as to both the cost and the quality of the service. So we have some big problems to solve but if we're going to go do that, we need the right infrastructure in place ahead of time to make that possible. Who are you selling this solution to? Yeah, a good question. You know, our primary customer today are the payers. And I think for people listening, they might think of them as insurance companies. You know, this is the Aetna's and CVS's, Humana, United Healthcare, and then local entities too. They have a need because they serve the federal government through the Medicare Advantage system. They have a need to leverage the technology standards to better communicate between themselves and their patients and the federal government. And so we've built out this infrastructure and we have 80 customers in the payer landscape. We also have some providers and then some in the clinical research space who are out there looking for medical data for clinical trials. What's it like selling to payers? I'm guessing that's not a, a quick sales cycle. Yeah, it's not, you know, and one of the things that we did here was 
you know, initially we were selling to more of like the app developer, and then we realized we could sell to the IT leader. And so what we're playing the game is just the same that every large enterprise software company plays. Find the budget, find the buyer, find the need, bring the best solution. And so it is a bit of, you know, having just a direct up account management team that's calling on customers, you know, new and existing. It works. We're a smallish company, but we work not that dissimilar to how large tech companies like, you know, the IBMs, SAPs, Oracles of the world have worked over forever. So yeah, that's who we sell to. It is a little bit hard. It does take a while. Contract negotiations are challenging, but we've learned how to get through it. Are there any numbers you can share that highlight the growth and traction that you're seeing? Yeah, you know, it's pretty exciting for us. Deloitte every year has a Fast 500 award, and they give an award to the 500 fastest growing companies. This period was from 19, I mean, 2019 to 2022. So, of course, 23 wasn't done. And uh, on that list, we were ranked 35th fastest growing company. We grew 5,100%. Over that three-year period, our employee base also grew from 15 to 155, so a 10x growth in employee base. And as you highlighted, we grew our funding. You know, we had raised in the seed round a couple million, and the A round was 8 million, the B round was 25 million, and the C round was 45 million. So growth in funding, growth in employees, growth in revenue, and growth in customers, all of that. Talk to us about going from Series B to Series C. What was that journey like? So that one is probably, let's say, it's like a little bit like going from high school to college. You know, you're pretty smart. You know what you're doing. But then all of a sudden, you're around a lot of smarter people who are much more mature. And you're like, oh, wow, this is pretty different. So I think going from B to C, you have to start to think about how you become really a reliable, predictable operating entity. Because people are now putting money into a predictable system, not just a good idea and not just a big total addressable market. They want to see predictability. They want to see how you're managing pipeline. What's your conversion rates? What are your retention rates? How's NRR looking? What do your margins look like? And so the dynamic of the conversation starts to feel like you are, and we're not a public company and not have like a plan to do that. But the way you talk about a public company starts to show as you go from B to C, because the C round investor is now looking for a different return model and a different operating team. And they're not just sold on big ideas. They want big ideas and good operators. Makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And I know you started out as the COO, I believe that was in 2020, and then yep. you took over as CEO in 2021. What's that like, you know, taking over from a founder and what was that transition like? Yeah, it's a very interesting balance. You know, I've done this many times. This is the fifth time I've done that. And I have a deep respect because I've been a founder too uh, for the role the founder plays. You know, they bring the idea 
you know, they have the inspiration, but for the most part, they're not an operator. It's not those two skill sets. There are some, my God, who have done amazing at it, right? I don't know, Bill Gates and Michael Dell and a few others, right? You know, we could find 10 or 20, but not thousands. It's a different skill set. So, you know, my experience in having been an operator and a growth guy worked very well with the founder because, you know, Ricky was great at building the proof of concept, getting them excited about an idea, but really wasn't that interested in building sales pipeline or HR departments or finance departments, or all the things you need to operate. And so, yeah, as the COO, I was happy to do that. But having been a CEO, I felt like that I could really help run the company and help him be successful by focusing on product strategy and direction. He got really interested in AI and we played around with that for a year. And then he went off and started an AI company. And so it was a good natural progression. We both were on the board from day one. And we both knew that this was a possibility, but it wasn't a dependency. It was just a natural evolution. And we still have a great relationship and Ricky still sits on the board. And I think that if we can do this more maturely in the industry of early stage to later stage companies, I think some companies will do better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the famous example that I hear about a lot is like, Uber, that Travis Kalanick should have, you know, stepped down a little bit earlier. Like he was the right person to lead the company in those early days, but then he held on. And then all of a sudden he was in a position where he wasn't the right person necessarily to run the company at that size. And he didn't give up control. And yeah, that led to a, a lot of issues. So that's one example of companies I've heard people talk about as an example of that. Yep, definitely. I think that none of us would want to run four legs of a relay race you might be able to finish two, but you certainly wouldn't finish four. And I think it's just the natural evolution of a company and skill sets. And, you know, we should all just find that to be okay. I don't think we need to run anyone out of town, but I think we need to be honest with ourselves about the stage and what the needs of the company are and who should lead at that point. Yep. Makes perfect sense. What about the competitive landscape? How do you think about the competitive landscape? Yeah, you know, we are like an emergent company. So we have people and companies like our size that we compete with. But then there are some of the big cloud players, you know, the Microsoft and Google and Amazons who have health data solutions. We can leverage their tech. They may want to bring in a fire server. So every once in a while, there's questions about, should I go with a big cloud provider? And our answer is, why don't you just use their infrastructure, but use our solution? There are other health application companies who have made a foray into this space, but are really not focused on building out data infrastructure. I mean, because we're in the data space, you know, of course, there'll be one day questions about the big data warehouse guys like Snowflake and Databricks. So we have a somewhat crowded space, but now that we have 80 customers, we probably have the most in this platform space right now in the industry. But we like, well, here's the one thing I learned, Brett, you know, you know, you're too far ahead of the market when you don't have competitors looking at the same opportunities you are. And now to a founder, I would just say, while it might be really exciting to be really early, that's the hardest problem to solve for because people aren't ready to buy. Having competitors show up is actually very satisfying and very necessary to all of our survival. When it comes to your market category, how are you thinking about your market category? Is this selling into an existing one or is this a category creation play? I think that it ultimately is selling into the, the data lakehouse category in healthcare, ultimately, because we're going to be assembling 
massive amounts of data that you would want to compute against. But in the beginning stages, since we're not operating at that scale yet, we're probably more an emergent solution provider in the regulatory compliance space. But every time we sign up a customer, we're bringing on so much data, we have, you know, billions of records and, you know, trillions of resources already under management. So the bigger that gets, the more we move into that space when someone says, huh, you know, you're more like a data lake house than you are this regulatory solutions provider. So we're treading in between right now. So we're about one month out before the year ends, and I'm sure you're already working on 2024 planning or have been working on 2024 planning for a while now. As you've been planning for the next year and the, the years ahead, what's keeping you up at night? Oh, wow. That's a great question. My God, there's a lot. Although I do sleep very well, you know, if you run every day, you do rest better than you would otherwise. I think that for me, the macroeconomic issues that we've had this year have slowed enterprise selling in a way that none of us like, you know, this is not just one up health, you know, where everyone was growing hundred percent, 200%, 500% over the years. And everyone's now like in this 10 or 20, 30, 40%. And wow, that's still great, but doesn't feel great because we're comparing to where it was. So for me, it's how long does this sort of economic situation take to settle out? We went from free money to somewhat expensive money reconciling that against the opportunity for benefits, even though you can deliver benefits today, budgets are being cut and buyers are slowing the process. And so that means you just have to be a better operator. You have to spend properly so that you don't burn cash too fast. You know, you can't lean too, too hard into growth. You have to have your hands on the steering wheel a lot tighter than you used to. And you just have to be doing market reading every month. You know, there's no sort of shortcut on the road to success right now. It's a lot of hard work. As I mentioned there in the intro, and I know we touched on that a couple of questions ago about funding, but I want to go into tactical insights and actionable advice. So from your fundraising efforts here and just your previous companies that you've been part of, what would you say is the number one piece of advice you'd give to a founder who's looking to raise capital for their startup? I'm talking to investors all the time. Like even the day after I close around, I'm talking to investors because I believe that by the time you run a process, you have to have established a lot of relationships. You don't want to be blind sending an email or a deck to people hoping they're going to read it. So right after the B round was closed, which was April of 2021, I started talking to a new set of investors. And so if they're willing to talk to me, I will take 30 minutes. Now there are some, and this might be a little bit controversial to say I'm wasting time. And actually, I think I'm marketing the company and I'm building a rapport. Over time, I'm actually showing them through the conversations I have that the plans that we make are the results that we deliver. And so by the time we get to raising around, they know who I am and it's all somewhat expected. And so I put a lot of time into that in this probably, you know, and I would think about what's the role of the CEO. I always say it's to do the things that no one else can do. And speaking to investors, that is our job primarily. You know, of course, we run the company day to day. So that's one. I think the other thing is our C round lead I met at what would be called a speed dating event, you know, was a lot of investors and a lot of companies raising money. And we have 20 minutes 
was Sixth Street. And that was the start of the relationship. People say, oh, those are a waste of time. I'm telling you, it's not a waste of time. I got to talk to, in that day, 15 different investors who walked away thinking something good. And then the last thing is, when you go to talk to them, actually come to the meeting with all the questions you believe they're going to ask and be ready with answers. Don't be sort of fumbling around. And actually, in the beginning, I often will tell them, why don't I tell you the five things I know you're going to ask so we can get to some of the more important topics. So you talk about margins and cash burn. You talk about retention. You talk about the growth of your pipeline. You're like, take it on right up front and build that rapport out of deep respect for each other. Get them excited about the business and the prospects. And then, you know, leave them wanting more and uh, keep talking. And sooner or later, they'll actually want to hear from you when you start raising money. Let's imagine that you're sitting here having a, a coffee with an early stage founder in the enterprise healthcare space. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give them outside of fundraising? Know who your target customer is, know them intimately, describe them, and understand what their buying behavior is. You know, that in the enterprise selling space, quota attainment has reduced year over year, every decade over the decade before. And you're sort of like, what's going on? And one of my friends owns a sales training team, and he's trained 20,000 enterprise salespeople over the past 20 years. And it is to me, there's two things that are going wrong. We don't know who the target customer is, and we don't do good time management. This is about being really practical. And it isn't about just that we have the best idea. These are people who we're selling into who at five o'clock want to go home and take their kids to the soccer game, right? They want the software to work. They don't need just promises of big ideas and billions of dollars of value creation. And so you have to take a very practical approach to it. Know who they are, know when they buy, know what their budgets are, who is the signing authority, and you know, really be practical and you'll be better at selling. It's been part of my success throughout. Final question for you, Joe. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? Well, we're gonna make healthcare better for all. That's the foundation of our mission. You know, we spend $4.2 trillion on this industry. It's on the way to six or $7 trillion and 25% of GDP if we're not careful. We need better health care. We need better quality care. We need lower risk and we need a better experience. And we believe that a data platform that's enabled every other industry to transform is necessary in healthcare so that these beautiful doctors and nurses and people who are part of the system can just operate better. So that when you have coordination of care, no one has to carry around medical records with them. When you have a gap in care because someone didn't get a prescription filled and that really matters, we can notify you. Every bit of this is about better data to allow for a better operation. And when we get there, we'll save 500 billion to a trillion dollars. We'll have healthier people and even more beautiful, you know, on the social determinants of health and on health equity, we'll be able to fund healthcare for people who cannot afford it today. And so we're on a mission to do this. And, you know, but as we said, where mission meets purpose, you know, I'm setting out personally to continue to make right lifestyle choices so that I can put less burden on the healthcare system. We can all be responsible about how we live. I can help the industry operate better. And, you know, in the next five years, We'll all be, you know, just happy to live that longer, happier, healthier life. And um, that'll be of worth, you know, everything. Amazing. 
I love the vision and I've really loved this conversation. I know it's going to be a, a huge hit with our audience. We are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap. But if there's any founders that are listening in and they just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? A couple things, of course, on LinkedIn, I publish a lot. I have a blog at the livingthehighperformancelife.net. And then, um, you know, you can read my book, The High Performance Life. It's on Amazon. Follow me on uh, Instagram. And uh, you could always just email me at joe at oneup.health. And I'd love to help any way I could. Amazing. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.